Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Edward Lemer, the Chauncey J. Medbury Professor of Management, Professor of Economics, and Professor of Statistics at UCLA and Director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast. Ed, welcome to Econ Talk. It's great to be here. Ed, I'd like to talk about outsourcing and trade generally, uh, partly in response to a lot of listeners who've asked for a podcast on the topic and partly mm-hmm. because it's such an important area. Uh, I'd like to draw on a a fascinating article you wrote for the Journal of Economic Literature that we'll post on the EconTalk website. It's a review you wrote of Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat. It's a 58-page review, and it's only sort of a review. It's really an excuse for you to give us your thoughts on trade. And I'd like to start with you point out that a lot of people worry about this so-called flatness, the idea that we're all in competition with each other and we could be losing all our jobs and our wages are plummeting and the middle class is dying but you argue that, in fact, for most American workers, that fear is unlikely to be a real uh, a reality. Why is that? Well, maybe we ought to start with that flatness metaphor, um, which I think is uh, used in an inside-out way by Friedman to warn about a world in which uh, your job is contested by everybody else in the globe, by people in Mexico City and Buenos Aires and Shanghai. But but geography, whether it's flat or otherwise, uh, doesn't create that kind of outcome. It creates special relationships between the buyers and sellers who happen to live in the same neighborhood. And uh, that limits the contestability. So the metaphor, first of all, is uh, inappropriate. And secondly, the reality is that um, there are some footloose jobs, uh, especially in manufacturing, that can, um, in effect, be posted on the Internet and have workers from around the globe bid to do those functions. That, those jobs are, are not that many. There, there are many in the apparel sector and in consumer electronics, uh, in textiles, uh, footwear. But as you go up the value chain in manufacturing, the uh, extent of the footloose functions uh, diminishes very greatly. Well, the list you gave, most of those jobs have already left the United States, for yeah, example. Yeah, and exactly. The, the, the countries that have been successful in competition have, been, have uh, benefited from the emergence of China and Brazil and, and uh, Eastern Europe, or the reintegration of those countries into a global competitive system. The countries that have gained from that are those that had relatively few of these footloose jobs or jettisoned them early, and recognize that competition against the Chinese was a hopeless uh, uh, situation. And, and uh, they positioned themselves in, in terms of product mix, both in manufacturing and also in services, in a way that is not, com- not, a, um, not competitive with Chinese sources of supply, but you might call them partnerships or cooperative, that both sides of that exchange benefit uh, and and that the uh, real problems of the globe that China creates are not in the United States or in other countries that are still competing with China. You talk about markets versus relationships, and you alluded to it a, a minute ago. Mm-hmm. W- explain that. 
and the idea of contestability. What's the idea there? Well, um, a, a market is, again, a metaphor. It's interesting how much I'm going to use that word. Um, a market is a reference to a medieval town where buyers and sellers would get together on a market day during a market month, for example, and they'd haggle over the price, and everyone would listening, listen to that haggling, and what would emerge from that market it was a market price at which uh, supply and demand was equalized. That's sort of the story of the market that economists are very familiar with. We use our supply and demand model. Where we're talking uh, about something like a tomato. Like a tomato. But economists uh, use that for... I use that market word to describe all kinds of uh, transactions. We'll talk about the labor market, for example. But most labor markets are not like these medieval market towns. And, and your job, your services are not like a, like a tomato, which is an indistinguishable tomato like anybody else's. You normally are going to bring something special to the workplace, something special that the employer recognizes, and that creates a relationship, not a market. And the way that uh, relationships respond to competitor pressures is totally different from the way that markets respond. A market, if you're if you're selling a tomato and uh, you post it on the internet and somebody offers that at a at a penny less, you either match that price or you don't get the sale. That, that's not the way most people's jobs operate. Most people's jobs are based on long-term relationships between the supplier, between the uh, employer and employee. And thus, the the extent of contestability is really pretty minimal for most of us. And yet, market forces certainly play a role. I'm not I'm not uh, immune from them in America if I'm in a high skilled job. So it's not it's not irrelevant to this, to say what wage I earn. It's just that I'm not in competition directly with a with a Chinese uh, laborer. Is that correct? Well, um, or do you disagree? I would say in, in, not directly or indirectly. You know, you think about the typical economic professor. The source of competition for them is it's there, but it's pretty uh, circumscribed. I mean, I'm trying to think of who I might think of as a competition for the functions that I serve. You know, I have very specialized knowledge about international economics and econometrics and forecasting. And uh, I, I doubt that there's anybody else in the globe who brings to the labor market that same set of, set of skills and knowledge. Yeah, but how relevant is that? Surely UCLA uh, – sort of let, let me back up for a sec. There's, there are two issues here. One of these long-term relationships you referred to, wh- what you also referred to in the article as, as friction in yeah. some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, UCLA doesn't, doesn't – Get special value from Ed Lehmer. Sure, you you know your way around the campus, and you have some relationships with people in Los Angeles and in the state of California. But a good substitute for you would be a, a really f- a first rate econometrics teacher who knew about something else besides international trade, right? So it's not it's not the long term relationship issue for to me. It seems in, in your case is not so important. What is important yeah. is, is the flair and distinctiveness you bring to the job, which you would bring to George Mason, that you would bring to University of Chicago, which you would bring to uh, Manchester, University of Manchester. Those, dis- th- those intangibles seem to me what make you uh, have less competition for your job, not so much the specifics of the employer-employee relationship. Do you agree? Well, both. Um, the 
what you what you described was might be called might be called quality competition, not price competition. A market is about price competition. So I wouldn't go to George Mason and say I'll do Russell Roberts' job for a dollar less than he'll do it. That's the way a market operates. It, it clears with regard to prices. But my job would be if I if I were pursuing that job or any other job, the goal of of the worker in an academic setting is to convince the employer or the university that they have something special uh, that's distinctive from other people that 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 uh, employer would want. Now, what you raise is the question of whether that is specific to the one employer or not. And some of it is and some of it isn't. So I, I definitely agree that the... Uh, and some of it gets built up over time. I, I like the point you make uh, in the article about trust, right? If in an employer-employee relationship in, in what we might call creative work, uh, trust and the intangibles and the unobservables that you get to observe when you work face-to-face with someone, those become much more important in what you call more mundane tasks They're like or a tomato. They're less important. You just yeah. want the object. You just want the output. Yeah, exactly. So my employer, UCLA – knows a heck of a lot more about me than any other Chicago or uh, George Mason could possibly know. Some of it, some of it not always positive, no doubt. That's that. true Am I too. correct? That's true, too. <laughs> but there's an investment in that relationship. Of the universities have a hard time recognizing that because of the way that we determine pay rates from, uh, from our external reputation rather than what we do locally. But most business firms are keenly aware of the special functions that are served by key employees, and they'd be very reluctant to have them leave. Well, let's, let's move on to a specific example in the area of trade, which, is, which you emphasize, which is the role of location and, and proximity. Uh, I think in people's minds, the worry is, is that you know, if wages are cheap in Mexico or cheap in Indonesia or cheap in India – Enormous number of jobs are going to flow out of the United States and drive down wages. But you point out as a first – as a starting point that proximity plays a surprisingly large role in trade and similarity, correct? Yeah, absolutely. There's what's known as a gravity model that uh, economists have estimated for a long time, since the 50s and maybe before. And what gravity does – the gravity model describes – the reason it's called gravity is the analogy with the – physical gravity, which uh, is proportional to the product of the mass is divided by the square of the distance between the two objects. And the, the economics gravity model is analogous, meaning that the amount of transactions that occur between two points in space is proportional to the product of the masses, in this case measured by GDPs, divided by not the square of the distance, but the distance to raise to a, to a lower power, like one or point eight or point six, depending upon what the product is and when the estimate had occurred. And that that model fits surprisingly well. If you look at uh, German trade, German trade uh, is in very intense with its neighbors, with Austria and with uh, France and now with the Czech Republic and Poland. Uh, the United States has has as some uh, has a very intense trade with Mexico and with with uh, Canada. Now, part of that's simply transportation costs, right? It's the fact that it's cheaper to ship stuff short distances. The surprise is that lower wage rates or lower other costs don't overwhelm that and and make distance uh, almost irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It matters. 
it matters enormously, and, and um, it can't really be transportation costs since this distance elasticity, the extent to which distance deters trade and physical products, that's been uh, pretty constant since the 50s, even in the face of tremendous reductions in uh, physical transportation costs through containerization and aircraft, and also absolutely phenomenal reductions in communication costs, even though we've had what seems like a much smaller world uh, in terms of the costs of conducting commerce over great distances, still that gravity model continues to percolate, meaning that most of your economic transactions occur within a couple hundred miles of where you live. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I think it comes back to uh, trust and understanding that you really want to do business with people that you know. And uh, the farther that you get away... Uh, the less confidence you have in in those um, in that business relationship. Now, it doesn't matter for a commodity that can be inspected and whose value is apparent or transparent. But for there's very few uh, commodities that are exchanged in global trade. We're experiencing that now with the, the Chinese products, for example, and that we thought of them as commodities, but <clears throat> with all these uh, health problems that are coming up there'll be a shrinkage back away from from the Chinese product because of the lack of reliability there. And I think you give the example in your article about Australia, uh, even though it's far away from lots of places, and New Zealand having the language uh, connection with the English-speaking nations, which gives it that trust factor and helps them grow and take advantage of globalization, even though they're far away. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, thing that's pointed out in that article is that the countries that have had successful uh, economic outcomes with with uh, good per capita incomes, they're all clustered together, physically clustered together, either in in uh, Europe or in North America. And uh, the uh, being far away is a very good predictor of low per capita incomes, with a few exceptions historically. And one, the, the oldest exceptions were New Zealand and Australia, who, although they're enormously far away, their per capita incomes in the 60s were really quite good. And the, why is that? Well, the, the message, it seems to me, is that ability to communicate with uh, and, and uh, have trust in the business relationships with the high-wage marketplaces in, in Europe and North America, that was critical in those British colonies had English, and they had uh, legal systems that supported the uh, transactions in a way that other places uh, didn't experience. So, and the message is, I think, for these developing countries that are far away, is an essential thing to do is to build a is to build a cultural linguistic bridge to the high wage marketplaces. Uh, that means to uh, send your kids to school in the United States so that they can understand uh, English and understand the culture and also have the kids from the United States come and attend your colleges, create those linkages. And and from the cultural linguistic linkages will come the business linkages, which are essential for economic growth. It's very interesting. Um, and by far away, you mean far away from higher income opportunity, obviously, Everything in Africa is close to Africa, but it's far away from economically successful potential trading partners. Yeah, you kind of you have a measure. Uh, we, I have a measure of closeness to global GDP, 
And uh, if you if you live in Europe, you're close to all the GDP that originates in Europe. But if you live in Africa, there's not too much GDP that originates in Africa, and you're far from where most of the GDP originates, which is North America and Japan and and uh, Europe. Well, let's turn to a mutual friend of ours, David Ricardo, uh, mm-hmm. long gone, but still um, still kicking. David Ricardo is. Uh, created the idea of comparative advantage. And the essence of that, which we teach our students, uh, thousands of them, although I think we often don't help them understand it, but we do force them to answer exam questions on it. The essence of Ricardo is that trade is driven by the differences between us and that the opportunity to specialize in what we do most effectively even makes observable differences uh, potentially more dramatic than than the underlying differences might be. Now, there's sort of two critiques you could make of that theory. One of which we've we've just touched on, which is, well, wait a minute. If you look at the actual pattern of trade, it's not so much uh, between differences; it's between similars. You know, the wealthy nations trade with each other. Yes, they trade with the lower income uh, countries for commodities and certain basic manufactured goods. But there's an immense amount of trade that takes place that's that appears to be on the surface between countries that are more similar rather than different. So that would be one argument you could make against Ricardo. The second one has come up more recently, which is that you know Ricardo didn't really foresee the modern world. The standard theory of trade doesn't take into account the fact that capital's mobile or that labor is mobile or that the Red Sox won the World Series. You know, there's just there's something's different, and all those models that economists used to teach about trade being good for both sides they don't apply anymore. So let's take each of those in turn. First, given what you said about the pattern of trade, how does what does Ricardo have to do with that? given the trade often occurs between neighbors who are similar to each other? Well, you know, we economists have this um, large uh, toolkit for analyzing problems, and international economists are, have uh, uh, Ricardian-type models, Hesher-Lean models that focus on um, uh, trade dealing with the uh, unequal distribution globally of, of uh, resources, of skills, and that you're going to have uh, exchange to deal with that unequal uh, distribution. But we have a large number of models that are associated very much with Paul Krugman's name that deal with economies of scale and product differentiation. The trade between uh, what might be called East-West trade between the United States and Europe and Japan is trade among countries, and, and Canada, is trade among countries with very similar per capita incomes and what seem like very similar endowments of uh, human capital and uh, and natural resources. Yet there's an immense amount of trade between these countries, and and economists have jumped on these various models about trade and differentiated products and scale economies to account for that exchange. And then the the north-south trade, trade between Mexico and the United States or between the United States and Brazil, uh, that the models that economists would use to describe that trade might be Ricardian, but more likely what are called Hexerlean models uh, that that deal with uh, trade between countries that have unequal supplies of unskilled workers. So that it's certainly the case that the Ricardian model doesn't apply to everywhere, and neither does Hexerlean. But these economies of scale and product differentiation model, the product differentiation models are very important as well. Well, it's, it's ironic because I think. The economies of scale ideas is really implicit in uh, Adam Smith, as my uh, my colleague James Buchanan 
has written about and we've talked about here in, in earlier podcasts, there's, there's sort of two reasons for specialization. One is you're different than I am. You're different from me. And this, but the second is is that um, sometimes you get specialization just from economies of scale. The division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And I don't know if that's I don't know Krugman's work well enough to comment on that, but that's certainly implicit in in Adam Smith. I totally agree with that. I mean, as many people over the last a couple of decades who think they rediscovered economies of scale or discovered economies of scale, where that that thinking goes back to uh, Adam Smith, of course. My own view on the division of labor is a little bit different, and that's that um, the it's not really economies of scale. It's keeping the capital operating for long hours during the day that's essential. In other words, if you if if um, if we're building a, a pin and and you and I have to know both how to do the shaft and the head, I have to create um, human capital to do both functions. Then when I'm making the shaft, the human capital for making the head. Is sitting idle, and when I'm when I'm building the head of the pin, the the knowledge that I created for for building the shaft of the pin is sitting idle. So what the division of labor really is about, it's it's keeping the human capital knowledge operating for long hours during the day. That's really the reason that we have the factory system because in the, when you're making the uh, the product in your home workshop, the the uh, the uh, loom sits idle while the while the sewing machine is operating. Most of the capital in the in uh, at the home is sitting idle, while the worker is using the hammer and and, uh, and not everything else. So the function of the factory system is to move that capital to the factory floor, where you can keep it operating at uh, long hours during the day and, and uh, minimize the capital costs. That's a very deep insight. That's very cool. Um. It's kind of mind-boggling uh, when we think about the range of human capital that we have and how little we use at any one point in time. Uh, yeah, and, and what the market has done is it created these more and more specialized kinds of activities. So the legal system, instead of you writing wills and and uh, contracts and doing litigation, uh, you, as you might have a uh, hundred years ago, a general-purpose lawyer, and we now have highly specialized lawyers, so that their knowledge is deployed. Well, you know, their specialized knowledge that they're operating is deployed uh, for long hours during the day rather than letting it sit idle when they're working on a different kind of task. It really is an interesting way to think about multitasking. So while I'm interviewing you, I'm also uh, instant messaging my children with, with life advice so that my, <laughs> my parenting human capital is not sitting idle while I'm using my economics. <laughs> no, I'm not, doing, I'm not doing that. But, but you can start thinking about that as a um, – uh, it's it's an interesting piece of life that that inability to use human capital. Um, it's it's the it's that darn brain thing. It's just it's the physical constraint of it being in the brain and then being in separate people uh, that makes life so interesting. Yeah. Uh, but let's get to that second complaint about David Ricardo because you have some interesting things to say about it. I know, which is this idea that somehow. You know, according to the great economist uh, Chuck Schumer, which is a cheap shot because that's that's, a, that's an ad hominem argument, and and, there, and he has Nobel laureates on his side, which which I want you to comment on. Yeah. Uh, some have argued from Charles Schumer uh, on the economic uh, quotient up to say Paul Samuelson that our traditional models of comparative advantage gains from trade. Uh, may not hold like they used to because of new conditions, and therefore outsourcing uh, is to be shunned or feared rather than embraced because uh, the standard economic 
models that we might, in intuition, we might invoke don't apply. What's your uh, take on that? Well, it's not just Chuck Schumer. It's also Paul Craig Roberts. Who, the two of them wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Right. And, he's he's uh, no relation to me, by the way, just, just, <laughs> just for the record. Just for the record. I wish okay. he had a different last name. Uh, <laughs> but um, they argued that, um, that mobility of factors, which is what, what they mean by outsourcing. By the way, outsourcing is a bad word, too because we traditionally refer to outsourcing as the um, as what a business does when instead of doing the function internally, it does it externally. Correct. And now we're using this word outsourcing to refer to moving a... Buying uh, stuff cheap from foreigners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Strange it's a bad idea. word, but let's understand that when you and I use the word outsourcing, we're talking about uh, having intellectual service activities uh, delivered to the, to the United States over the internet or or uh, other other uh, electronic transmission. Okay, so we're talking about call centers. We're talking about back office uh, customer service stuff. R and D work. R and D. We're talking about uh, reading of X rays by uh, Indian radiologists. Yeah. Writing of headlines by uh, Indian headline writers for wire services. So a wide range of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, Good and, for America or bad? Well, the the way to think that about that is that's as if these folks had emigrated to the United States. You know, that's a that's a fact of flow. It's it's just tantamount to having them live in the United States, provide the services here. So Some the, people are afraid of that too. Yeah. Well, I'm not, Schumer but... and Roberts says. Uh, I mean, I just quote. I've got the quotation in front of me. It says. Uh, one thing is certain, real and effective solutions will emerge only when economists and policymakers end the confusion between the free flow of goods and the free flow of factors of production. So they're arguing that Ricardian model applies only if there are no, uh, there's no uh, movement of factors, capital or labor, in this case intellectual services, through the Internet. And uh, that, that thinking is just dead wrong. Why? And my, well, I, I to quote from my article, I, I said that my first reaction to Schumer and Roberts was, "You need to write on a blackboard 100 times there are gains from exchange," and uh, and you need to go back and read not just Ricardo but Adam Smith. Where, the, where is that? Those uh, incredibly insightful analysis of the gains from exchange. And the, what do you mean and, by that? Why do you say they should they should recognize that? Well, the 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 Adam Smith argument is that if there is a gain. If there's an exchange, the exchange itself uh, re- reveals that there's a gain, that the service or good ex- is transferred from someone who values it less to someone who values it more. That's a gain. So the fact that there is fact of mobility uh, doesn't eliminate the fact that doesn't eliminate the gain whatsoever. It still is going to, going to be gained from every exchange that occurs. Now what the what the fact of mobility does, however, is it changes the supply and demand relationships, uh, general equilibrium relationships around the whole economy, and it changes uh, equilibrium relative prices. And relative to those new equilibrium prices, you may be worse off. Right. So individuals, obviously the American company and their, their possibly their employees, certainly their – potentially their stockholders uh, – some with some within that firm is saving resources by buying something cheaper overseas. That produces a benefit for some Americans, but 
prices could change as a result of those opportunities that make other Americans worse off. That would be the issue, right? Yes. So the, in a, the, to continue that example, which I discuss in this paper, um, imagine that the communications technologies are not good enough to allow software coding to be done in India. It all has to be done in the United States. Okay. And that comes from the uh, historical uh, reality that this stuff, this, this intellectual service got started in the United States, and it's very clustered. You have to have these people uh, working in close proximity to do creative uh, coding. So the United States is the only provider of software coding in this hypothetical model. So, well, then there's a monopoly rent that accrues to the United States as a result of that. The price on software coding is quite high. The United States gets great benefit from trading this high-priced service for the uh, low-priced uh, apparel and footwear that we buy from the rest of the globe. I think you also have to make an assumption there about the distribution of the talent, right, about the ability of people to do this task, that it's not easily done, that there's some people who are really good at it, some people are pretty good at it, and there's a finite number of them, though, right? Otherwise, competition within the United States could bid the price down. Well, but there's only a there's only a limited number of people in the United States. So yeah, I think any way it is, I, I have to think about what you said. But it seems to me that even if everybody's identical in the United States, in fact, that's the way it's discussed in this paper that that we're talking about. Right, but everybody's you need a, identical. Everybody's in the identical, States. but the demand within and outside the United States is large enough to push up the price. Because uh, uh, otherwise, American software. Programmers could just compete away those rents among themselves. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm so the U.S. About. is not a huge country compared to the rest of the yeah. globe. So go ahead. So that skill is, is scarce and valuable. Those people make, make some money. Americans are, as a whole are better off. And um, But then something changes, technology or communication ability, and lots of people can do it now. Yeah, now, now you can have the, the uh, software writing done in India. So what happens? Well, the supply, the global supply of software is going to increase because it no longer has the same supply constraints limited to the production of the United States. When that global supply of software increases, the price has to fall. If it's a if it's a commodity, you know. That's the key question, though. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute. But anyway, the model that uh, this model is about commodity activities and not distinctive uh, intellectual services. So the the terms of trade deteriorates for U.S.-produced software, and the U.S. is made worse off as a consequence of that, because the U.S. had a monopoly position producing and selling software, and suddenly the monopoly position uh, dissipates, and the software is being, can be made anywhere in the globe, including in, uh, in India. So that makes the U.S. worse off, but then relative to that new equilibrium... Well, it doesn't make the U.S. worse off. It makes U.S. producers of software worse off. Yeah. Because now, so it makes the whole well. The U.S. Uh, collective terms of trade is deteriorates, and the U.S. collectively is worse off by a consequence of that terms of trade change. Is that true? Because it seems to me one of the things that's missing from the the scare story. There's two things that are missing. One of which we're gonna, we're deferring, which is the the contestability or distinctiveness of these intellectual skills. I want to come back to that. But certainly, there's an enormous advantage to the like, the way I like to think of it is. Instead of making it cheap, let's make it free. So let's say, uh, and I, I think this is an important parallel to make, which you make implicitly at a couple points in your paper. Uh, I'm going to call it an essay, by the way, so that so that our listeners don't get scared off from it because most of it's <laughs> most of it's very accessible to to the general reader. 
So if the United States, because of a technological change, suddenly is able, and everyone in the world is suddenly able to snap, you can snap your fingers and you can have software written. You need a database, you just snap your fingers and say database. You need a web page, you snap your fingers and say web page. That lowers the return to the specialized skills that the people who invested in those skills, the programmers, they, they lose their money. They're going to be poorer, at least on, at first. But the rest of us are immensely better off because now we have very inexpensive uh, software free in this extreme example. It's nothing to do with trade. It's just a technology example. We're going to be – all of us are going to be – who aren't software programmers are much better off because we don't have to use resources now to produce web pages. We don't have to work to produce web pages and the, and the money we needed to buy software skills. So counterbalancing the loss to the software producers is this enormous gain to, uh, quote, everyone else. And that, in turn, is going to unleash resources to do other things we can't foresee right away. So why is that not part of the story? Well, it is, and it isn't. I mean, economists have models that can um, can do anything, you know. So in the <laughs> paper, I, I talked about two different models. One is Ricardian model, in which the workers are all identical. They don't have the characteristics that you talked about. The other one was the Hexerlein model, in which there are uh, designers and helpers. The helpers are doing the coding, and the designers are creating the product. Right. And then it's a second model in which this outsourcing may or may not help everybody, because the there are um, there's a big increase in global GDP as a consequence of this uh, improvement in communication technology, and that can make both the the designers and the helpers in the United States better off, even though the helpers are feeling the force of competition from Indian helpers, Indian software writers. So the the answer to your question is that in a way it depends on a model you want to talk about. Right, and we could keep we could keep spinning them. I'm, you're listening yeah. to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and I'm talking with UCLA professor Ed Lemer about outsourcing and globalization. Obviously, we could spin a whole bunch of different models. Uh, let's talk a little bit about reality. Uh, one more model thought, though, which is we've been talking about human capital, the knowledge that we have that's you know trapped in our brains and how we use it, when we use it. If you have a very specialized skill and suddenly someone uh, far away is able to compete with you and has that same specialized skill, and there's a lot of those folks, you're going to have a tough time. And the question becomes, what can you do with the rest of your brain that's productive? Uh, if once you learn to be a computer programmer, uh, competition drove your wages down to $5 an hour from cheap foreign uh, Indian and Chinese uh, programmers, well, you'd have a tough time making a good living if there was nothing else you could do. In the uh, around 2000, a lot of people who'd been making $75 an hour uh, producing web pages because no one else knew how to do it suddenly found, again, nothing to do with so-called outsourcing, but because of technology, the the routinization of, of web page writing and software that got written by cleverer people that would allow people to do that at low cost, suddenly you couldn't get $75 or $100 an hour writing web page. You got, because a teenager could do it, or a high school, you know, high school kid, a uh, seventh grader could do it. So you had to think of something else to do. You had to learn. You had to find a new skill. You had to apply your human capital to something else. A lot of those people did. Um, so again, I think it's important to make it clear to our listeners that. The technology and trade are very similar in their impacts, 
And the real question is in terms of how widely enjoyed the benefits from these trade changes are going to be depends on the ability of people to be flexible with their skills. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, totally agree with that and add a little bit more, which is that there are different kinds of functions, both in manufacturing and in intellectual services. There are mundane codifiable functions that I can <clears throat> define the specs and we can post the job on the web and have people bid from around the globe to do it. But then there are the innovative, creative kinds of tasks that that are impossible to define and um, that that uh, require uh, understanding and, and uh, knowledge and wisdom, insight, experience that uh, is, is uh, I guess, pretty unique among individuals. So what happens in both manufacturing and in intellectual services is that you'll get a burst of demand for these creative, innovative activities, but inevitably you get standardization in, in the case of manufacturing, you get mechanization of the product. Once the, uh, once the product is standardized and mechanized, then it becomes footloose and workers around the globe can bid to do the function. The same thing is true for intellectual activities. Is that, uh, that uh, you, you made a great description of it, which is that writing of of uh, the building of web pages at one point was a very creative, innovative kind of task, but inevitably they come, it becomes standardized, and in the case of intellectual services, it becomes computerized. Once that's done, then your job is over because you don't want to have to compete against the Chinese. That's hard enough, but to compete against a computer, that's even tougher because a computer is going to tear, carry out tasks with accuracy and with speed that no human being can match. So what we want our children to do, we don't want to endow them with uh, skills, with the limited skills that force them to compete against the Chinese, nor do we want to provide them only the limited skills and creativity that allows them or forces them to compete against computers, because in both cases, they're going to have miserable, tiny little lives because that competition is going to drive down their wages and make them economically very poor. So what we want to do is give our kids the wherewithal to make sure that they can do the creative functions and uh, and have the happy lives, the happy lives that come both from their creativity but also from the economic security that those functions are going to provide in the 21st century, a, a period of time when there's going to be a lot of economic insecurity among those individuals who can only carry out the codifiable, mundane kinds of tasks. And we had a podcast with Dan Pink, uh, author of A Whole New Mind, where he talked about some of the ways that people could distinguish themselves in, in creative ways. But I think it's important to emphasize that the fear part uh, is only half the story, that this competitive process is, is, has a glorious side, which is it is what creates our standard of living. It is what creates that process of do it cheaper and better, do it with a computer rather than a person, do it uh, in the dark, uh, in factories without human beings, is good. It's tough on people in the, in the transition period, obviously, but it is the source of our standard of living, our wealth, our uh, longevity, our health, uh, and all the glorious and pleasant things that make life worth uh, enrich life uh, beyond the material. So it, it's easy to focus on the scary part, which is uh, mundane tasks are going to be uh, – highly competitive and pay poorly, and things that are creative today will become mundane as people find innovative ways to do them with mon in mundane ways. But th that's good. Yeah, I completely agree. I do want to add, though, and I've discussed in my essay, I, mean, I raised the question whether a computer is 
a forklift or a microphone. Yeah, I love that. Talk about that. It's a fantastic uh, example. Yeah, so it sounds fork- bizarre. <laughs> a forklift is the symptom of the industrial age, a symptom of the kinds of of innovative equipment that was put into the factories of the United States and of the globe. And what a forklift does is it allows you and me and all of our listeners to lift the same amount, no matter how strong they might be, no matter what their physical endowment might be, that forklift makes them enormously more productive and also eliminates the genetic differences between them. So that's an innovation that uh, creates higher wages, but also equal wages among individuals. A uh, microphone is a very different kind of innovation because it differentially uh, benefits the people with a natural talent. That's right. So, so in the in a uh, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, the the uh, entertainers would sit in front of their local um, theaters with a couple hundred people in the audience only, and and every town had its supply of entertainers. But in this um, information age that we live in, with the microphone and the recording devices and the ability to transmit around the globe, now a single entertainer can serve the whole global marketplace. And the result of that is uh, a place like Hollywood has a, a great amount of income inequality with some real stars that make enormous amounts of money and lots of peop- other people don't make so much. And the reason is, is that that technology of the transmission of the of uh, creative artistry uh, helps the people who have natural talent and also work hard, but that talent is a key com- is a key component in that kind of activity. So when I say is a computer a forklift or a microphone, there's an admission in that question that the computer is a source of tremendous improvements in productivity. Uh, and we all want to cheer that because economic progress depends upon improvements in productivity. But the question is whether the 21st century is going to be like the 20th century in which people at all levels of the income distribution benefited from the productivity improvements on the factory floor, or are we going to have a different kind of society in which the productivity improvements differentially affect the talent of individuals the way it is in Hollywood? So it's a kind of Hollywood and Detroit choice, and what I worry about is the labor markets are increasingly looking like Hollywood labor markets and less and less like Detroit uh, labor markets. Well, let me give a cheerier perspective and, okay. and get your reaction. Uh, I, first of all, I love the, the that way of thinking about it. Obviously, the computer is a forklift and a, a microphone. It has aspects that equalize us, make us more productive, and it has opportunities for people to of extraordinary skill to have earn enormous amounts of money because of their ability to reach people that couldn't be reached before. The, the other aspect of that, though, is that, which I think is, is easy to miss, is that let's talk about the microphone aspect. Um, earlier guest, uh, Nassim Taleb, in his book, The Black Swan, actually uses this exact same uh, example, how you'd have uh, in the old days – if you were in a small town in, in Italy, you made a decent living singing at weddings and and uh, and performing and entertaining people on the weekends. But when uh, technology comes along, they don't want to hear you. They want to hear Pavarotti. And suddenly, you can't make a living doing what you used to do. And you, at best, you're a you're a, you're a music teacher, which is gratifying and has its own rewards. But it doesn't pay maybe as what the old job did. And I, I think that just it's a wonderful way to think about. What, what technology can do that is, that is good and is challenging. 
but we miss a piece of it, I think, in that you don't need as many people singing, right? What you get yeah. with what you get with the microphone, what you get with broadcast, what you get with the web, is you get. I'd rather hear Pavarotti than you. I'm, I'm taking a stab at it. Uh, you, you, you conceded. <laughs> I guarantee in your, that that's the case. You conceded in your essay that you're not uh, you're you're not at the at the right hand tail of the singing distribution. So. I might be stuck with you in the old days. Now, one, I get Pavarotti. That makes life better. That's number one. But number two, Ed Lemer gets to become an econometrician and, a, and, a, and an economist rather than being a singer. So because we need fewer people, there's two things going on. There are fewer people doing this thing, and their rewards are enormous. And that's true of a whole bunch of skills, whether it's sports, entertainment, which is entertainment, um, High high level forms of uh, of these service activities, you know, heart transplant surgeon. These folks, although that one maybe technology doesn't work so well, but in general, the opportunity, the communications revolution, the internet revolution, the broadcast revolution, these have changed the the payments, but it changed the number of people who are doing it, which is good, not bad. It means that those other folks are freed up now to do something else productive, and they get to enjoy Pavarotti now instead of Ed Lemer. So it seems to me that when you say, do we, you know, we, we worry whether the twenty first century is going to be like the 20th, those inequalities to me have enormous upsides. The downsides are social and cultural. And to be honest, I don't really think that most of us are aware of them unless we read about them in the newspaper. I don't really know how much um, you know, other uh, – I, I have no idea what the, what the distribution of income is in the United States, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a student of the distribution. I have no idea what percentile I'm in. Most people don't unless it's printed. So it's, it's, it's not tangible. The fact that there are people who make enormous rewards, I, I don't see how that hurts me. In fact, more people get to enjoy the good singers. So why isn't that a good thing? Well, I, I, let's go back to uh, Detroit and uh, Hollywood. I think you're imagining a world uh, that has both Detroit and Hollywood so that the productivity improvements that allow fewer people to do the work in Hollywood – um, that just frees up people to have the good jobs that Detroit offers. It yeah. may not be the same rate of pay, but it's pretty darn good uh, middle class American life. And higher Detroit than it offers. was, and higher than it was twenty five years before, because we get to enjoy Pavarotti and the equivalent across all these other goods and services. Yeah, and and, um, and but the question then is, if the number of jobs in manufacturing, which is really where we've been building the middle class. If that continues to shrink, and it's now where it used to be, thirty-five percent of our jobs and were in manufacturing. So now it's only eleven percent, and destined to get even smaller. If we don't have those manufacturing jobs, which is where the middle, most of the middle-class positions have been, where are these uh, former singers? Uh, ones who now have to compete with Pavarotti, where are they going to get the jobs that are decent paying? Well, I you could have concern. you could have said the same thing in nineteen hundred, up to a point. So let, let me. Let me take your analogy, and then we'll step off and see where how far. I know it doesn't go as far. In 1900, when 40% of the American workforce was on the farm, you could have said, if it shrinks to two, which is about what it is now, maybe a little bit less, mm-hmm. over the next century, oh, my gosh, where are the new jobs going to come from? Well, they came from manufacturing partially, but they also – they mainly came from an explosion of services, jobs that were unforeseen, unforeseeable. And I assume the same thing is going to happen because that underlying process of creativity is what's going to drive it. Well, we come back to the forklift and the uh, microphone. So we had a transition in this country from an agrarian to an industrial society, which I think ended around 1970 when the fraction of manufacturing jobs started to decline. 
and and that transition worked. Uh, that was great because the compensation rates on the factory floor floor were about three times as high as they were on the farm. Every time we moved a worker off the farm onto the factory floor, we get a little burst of GDP as a consequence of that. And then year after year, we had these innovations like the forklift and <clears throat> electric motor, yeah, all kinds of stuff that improved the productivity, but improved it in a way where Americans at every level of skill were benefiting from that great economic growth that occurred in the 20th century. And that would be terrific if that would happen in the post-industrial age that we're moving into. But I think that um, the the income inequality that that we're experiencing, with, which is having a few superstars, that's a symptom of the kind of economy that we're moving into. And I think it's a source of concern. The, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that the 21st century is going to yield... Tremendous economic growth, and uh, in large part because of the communications technologies are so great. The internet is just starting to have an impact, I believe, I and its potential is enormous. But on the other hand, I think there is a concern that that economic growth is not going to be widely shared. That's going to be concentrated on Pavarotti and not on me. Okay, let me <laughs> let me give two footnotes to that. One, okay. the, the proportion of, of manufacturing, of, the proportion of employment manufacturing has been falling before 1970. It, it really goes back to 1946 or so. Well, uh, we had a wartime high, but except for that. Well, I think it, it will – let's defer that. Okay. We could, we could debate that, but that's that's not my main point. Okay. Um, I think the real issue here is, is as you say – from a welfare perspective, uh, the way economists use the word welfare, meaning well-being, are the gains going to be widely shared or, or concentrated in the hands of the few? I don't, I'm not worried personally. This is a matter of personal preference. I don't think economics has much to say about this, and people will differ. But I'm not worried if some people get fantastically rich as long as everyone else is getting richer as well. I think what would be alarming would be if the gains go to a small handful at the expense of others. And I think it's hard to sell that story. Obviously, what's what's fun, what I'm enjoying about this conversation, and I hope our listeners are enjoying also, is the way economists think out loud on their feet, spinning uh, implicitly, spinning models when when we when we use these uh, these uh, casual ways of talking about data and, and what might happen. But what I have in mind is that you know for Pavarotti to capture those gains um, for the University of Alabama uh, football coach to uh, make an enormous amount relative to his predecessors. He's got to make a lot of people happy. That money's got to come from somewhere, right? Yeah, I I completely agree. So some of those gains have to be shared, else they won't buy the record. They won't go to the football game. So I'm much more optimistic, but again, uh, perhaps I'm uh, I'm wrong. I'm much more optimistic. Let me bring this back to uh, my home state of California. And um, the Southern California, the city of Los Angeles is already half Hispanic, and the whole state is going to be uh, probably half Hispanic in uh, 20 years, 30 years. And a feature of these Hispanics are many of them are recent immigrants or first generation, maybe second generation, and their educational attainments aren't that great. The ladder of opportunity in this country for economic improvement has always been through manufacturing. When I lived in uh, upstate New York, outside of uh, Binghamton, New York, uh, and they had at that in the at the turn of the century, last century, the major manufacturer in the area was a shoe manufacturer called Endicott Johnson. Sure. And um, migrants who would arrive at Ellis Island 
who couldn't speak English, they were told to ask the question, which way, E.J.? <laughs> Meaning, how can I get to that <laughs> community yeah. and have that, um, and start the progress up the ladder of American opportunity? And the problem that we have with the Hispanic community here in Southern California is that that manufacturing rung on the ladder of opportunity just isn't there. So and, you get, nor, and the agriculture one is both. Both of those are diminished through some through trade, but all, mostly through technology. Yeah, mostly through technology. So then, um, what's a kid with a high school education going to do? It used to be you got a decent job in. Uh, uh, making automobiles at a, at a, at a solid middle-class uh, American salary. But that isn't there anymore. Right. So what so, happens? Well, so what how happen- are we going to absorb all these Hispanics and make a happy state with with a, a reasonable outcome in 20 years? It's not an easy thing. Well, two, you know, two thoughts. One is just because that's the way it's always been, the fact that manufacturing's been the wrong doesn't mean it, it will be in the future or has to be. Second thought. Uh, educational attainments at an all-time high continues to grow. So I think what used to be – it's true. A high school degree used to be a, a ticket to a middle-class job. It's not any a middle-class lifestyle. It's not anymore because most people don't stop there. A lot of most people go on to college. And whether that's good or bad, you know, that we, obviously there's measurement issues about what a college education really means. It's not the same for everybody. It depends what you major in. But that one answer is those immigrant children are not going to stop at high school like their immigrant – predecessors of two generations past or three generations past did. They're, we want them to go on to college if, if that's going to be as productive as it has been in the past. But I think the other thing is, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't, we don't know how that's going to evolve, and we want to let market forces make, let them work. Obviously, we have lots of things that interfere with them that make it difficult. But here in, in the D.C. area where I live, what immigrants do is they do all kinds of stuff it's not manufacturing by the traditional sense, but it is in an untraditional sense. They paint, they repair houses, they do yard work, they do physical labor that is – it's not a middle-class lifestyle right away, but they work very hard. They work long hours, and they make a much better life than they had in Mexico or Guatemala or, or Costa Rica or wherever they came from, Panama, and they're very happy. And their kids are in American schools, going to speak English. And a lot of them are going to go on to college and have dramatically better lives, certainly than they would have had if they stayed in their home country, and probably than their parents. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But optimistic I, but enough for I, you? <laughs> that's very optimistic. But I think that this, uh, our ability to assimilate these immigrants is just fundamentally different now than it was a hundred years ago when you had the Endicott Johnson Shoe Company. That could be. Um, it's an interesting. It's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer. Let's move on to something we know a little bit more about factually. Uh, you call it the facts in in your essay. Uh, and let's go back to the global uh, issues. Really interest, amazingly uh, insightful chart uh, you have in there, a diagram. Uh, you look at the transformation of world income from 1980 to I think 2005. Is that correct? Is that the time period? Well, it might be in 2000. 2000. It's a 20-year period yeah. during which trade increased dramatically around the world. And the way I'm going to ask the question is, why doesn't everybody earn $5,079, which is, I think, uh, that's world per capita income. And yet in America, it's very, very high. It's much, much higher than that. And in other parts of the world, it's much, much lower. And some funny things happened in that 1980 to 2000 period. Talk about that. Well, um, so the average uh, global per capita GDP in 1980 was, as you said, around 5000 about $5,100, whereas U.S. per capita GDP was around was over 20000 
and the, the people who were uh, wanting to scare us were arguing that the liberalizations of India and China, the extent to which they were dumping into the global labor markets an enormous number of large, unskilled workers, what that would do is create a great equalization in which the low-income countries like India and China would have their per capita GDPs rise to 5,100, but the U.S. at the high end of this global distribution would have force and force would experience this enormous fall from over 20,000 down to 5,000, and that's like a hundred years of economic history being reversed as a consequence of of global competition. Uh, that didn't happen. What's interesting, and it's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen for a long time anyway. So what's interesting is the um, global income changed dramatically from 1980 to 2000, but it wasn't this great level, great equalization at all. The the high income countries, particularly the United States and Japan, experienced very substantial income growth, and the low income countries, particularly China and India, also experienced very substantial per capita income growth, but it was the countries in the middle that were were uh, left behind, in which there was very, very little low or even some, in some cases, reductions in per capita income. And I take that as evidence that the Chinese and Indians are not competing with the U.S. and Japan, but they're competing especially with the Latin American countries of Brazil and Mexico, offering the globe to do basically the same mundane services in apparel, footwear, and textiles. And uh, by and large, the United States doesn't have much in a way of product produced here that is in competition with China and India. And the result is that the U.S. benefits enormously from Chinese and Indians' entrance into the global uh, economic system. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, But it's nice to have a fact or two to, to back it up. And of course, as we've been talking about off and on in this conversation, you're talking about the United States as a whole, not necessarily changes of income inequality within the United States, which are, which appear to be growing. Although I'm a bit of a skeptic because of the imperfection of the data. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about the worries of the middle class, we're leaving out fringe benefits, which have become increasingly important and are growing dramatically. And I'm curious if, as a numbers guy, if you've looked at these China and India numbers at all or thought about them, terms of their accuracy. You know, we talk about, you know, the number of people in China or India earning less than a dollar a day or two dollars a day and how much, how many fewer there are, which is a glorious thing. But how, how what's the quality of those numbers? Do we have any, any idea that those are close to vaguely accurate? Well, I'm, I'm sure they're not anywhere near accurate. The same thing is true for the U.S. government statistics. I've served on panels that had to do with the accuracy of trade data and was um, appalled by uh, finding out how these numbers are actually put together, numbers that I thought were correct to the three or four decimal points that they report them to, turns out to be very, very fuzzy indeed if you really understand how they're put together. Doesn't the world run a, a, a trade imbalance with itself? Is it a deficit or surplus? Do you know? I forget that. I think you know, there's a global deficit, I thought. Which implies missing, that... Missing trade, I guess. Global well, missing We're trading with Mars. It's, yeah. it's black market trade <laughs> with other planets. Uh, but obviously it's a measurement problem that... that that uh, imports and exports are not measured accurately in every country in the world, and therefore global trade is not in balance as it is. It- yeah, well, imports are usually scrutinized much more than exports because the countries impose taxes on the imports. Incentives have a funny way of working. They have a funny way. So the story is that uh, truckers uh, 
they have to fill out what's called export declarations when they go from the United States to Canada, describing what's in the truck and what the value is. And instead of stopping, they'd have a garbage can at the border where the truckers would just throw these export declarations in, symbolically describing how accuracy those how accurate those numbers are. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost out of time. And one thing, last thing I want to ask you about is. Um, is a study by Alan Blinder, which uh, touches on a lot of the issues we've been talking about today. He claims that 30 to 40 million service jobs, including some very high-paying ones, are offshoreable, as he calls it, or as some people call it, and that therefore uh, radiologists, mathematicians, people with high levels of skills and high levels of income are at risk of uh, the, seeing their, their jobs contested and therefore their wages are going to fall dramatically potentially over the next, uh, I think, a long time. It's a, it's a decades-long uh, trend he's worried about. Have, right. you looked, have you looked at that study? Uh, I have looked at it. And what do you think of it? There's no evidence in that. So the evidence would have to do with elasticities um, between your wage rate and the wage rate of some other worker in some other part of the country. That is some causal connection some, of yeah. some size. So what he does is he feels free to just go through the list of labor descriptions of these occupations and say, well, that, that one's probably going to be a problem and this one's okay. And then he adds, up, adds them all up and gets to his number, I guess, it's 30%. But... Um, the, the, I don't know any evidence that suggests that the contestability of, of uh, labor market activities in the United States is anywhere near as uh, severe as he identifies. You talk about a paper that looks at this radiologist issue. I think that was the I think that was the uh, the thing that alarmed some folks, perhaps the most. You know, the idea that well, it's one thing to lose the call center job, but when we start losing the radiology jobs. Maybe our standard of living's at risk. And of course, my thought is, well, cheap X-rays are good for a lot of people. They're not good for radiologists. I understand that. But uh, that, what did that study find? That looked at radiologists. Yeah, they they find that um, there's been about three uh, X-rays that have been read in <laughs> India, and the New York Times wrote this big article. The thing about X-rays is that you, you don't want to have your X-rays read by somebody that you don't know and trust. And and furthermore, your lawyer doesn't want to have it read by somebody who is outside the reach of the U.S. legal system. Well, you're, Oh, yeah, well, that's a good point, yeah. So uh, x-rays are not going to be read routinely in, uh, in India, I don't think. But I think the interesting example is the way you worded it, which I really liked, which is you want to shake hands with the, with the person who's reading the x-ray, and it's, it's this trust issue and subtle elements of it, which are, it's not just that you want to speak the same language so that you don't misinterpret some statement that something's a tumor that benign that isn't, you know, God forbid, but, but more that you want to probe and ask and say, well, what about this over here? And you want to be able to do that face-to-face so you can have an idea of what the level of confidence is rather than getting an email that says, oh, I'm really sure of it. It's just such an important part of life. I think we um, we f- we forget. We're humans. We're still animals. I had I give you an experience yesterday. I had somebody come out uh, to do an inspection in my house with regard to termites, and I really like that person, and that has a big impact. Just likability has a big impact on my willingness to hire them to do the job. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it. It still plays a role. It's an interesting question of of uh, how much we care about that in today's world, I think we probably care less about it 
because we can get a really, um, I can get a really uh, beautiful shirt for $10 made by someone who may be a glorious person or may be an awful person who lives very, very far away from me. And I save my, my liking and pleasant interactions for my colleague around the, the corner and my, <laughs> and my kids. Yeah, aren't they? They are. They, <laughs> they, um, to my face, they say they are. But I think that's, I think that's, that's an interesting, um, interesting part of the puzzle, which is uh, hard to get your hands around, but it's still part of it, I think. Well, my guest today has been Ed Lemer, the Chauncey J. Medbury Professor of Management, Professor of Economics, and Professor of Statistics at UCLA, and Director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking these penetrating questions. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.